One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and welcome to The Daily Beast, the new abnormal. I'm a left wing pundit and an editor at large at The Daily Beast. We're here to have fun, sharp conversations with some of the smartest people in media, politics, and science that help make what's happening in the country and the world clearer. Our world has been turned upside down. On The New Abnormal, we'll talk about the people who got us into this mess and figure out how to get ourselves out of it. And I'm producer Jesse Cannon. I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. Today, we have a blockbuster show. First, we're going to talk to Crooked Media's Brian Boitler about his big ideas on how to get around the gridlock in Congress on voting rights. And then we'll talk to David Roberts, who writes the Volts newsletter on clean energy and politics. And he's going to talk to us about the latest horrors we're experiencing with climate catastrophes. But first, we have the author of Too Much and Never Enough, Mary Trump. Welcome back to the new abnormal, Mary Trump. Molly, it is awesome to be back. Hi, Jesse. I can't believe how long it's been. (laughs) Yeah, it has been. But you are still like a very frequent flyer on the new abnormal. Oh, cool. I like being a frequent flyer on the new abnormal. It's true. We mix our Jong metaphors here. (laughs) Your uncle didn't pay his taxes? I'm shocked by this development, I have to say. It's shocked, I tell you. Yes. I think that's the circumstance uh, for which the phrase knock me down with a feather was invented. (laughs) So the big question is, will there be more indictments? There are certainly people in this filing who are not identified. And of course, there's the fact that they kept two sets of books, which would sort of point to Trump having some knowledge, right? And of course, the reason they kept two sets of books was to make sure that Alan Weisselberg didn't make over $950,000 with all of these perks that they weren't paying taxes on. This is a pattern of very long standing. This is right out of my grandfather's playbook. And what gives me some confidence that one, there's more to come, and two, this will end up mattering is because the kind of fraud that's being alleged here is is like exactly the kind of thing my aunts and uncles did to me. And because of that, you know, patterns imply, strongly imply intent, right? Yes. Can you just, for the people who don't know, explain a little bit of what they did to you? Yeah, of course. I'm sorry to make that ridiculous assumption. I know exactly what you're talking about, but just because my dad listens, too. Oh, okay. Hi, Molly's dad. (laughs) He's great. You would love him. Okay, cool. So here's a a really quick summary. After my dad died, my aunts and uncles were my fiduciaries. They were, you know, supposed to help protect my investments. And one of those investments was in a partnership called Midland Associates that essentially my grandfather's core business, Trump management, paid to manage his properties. And then in the 80s, after my dad died, they created a shell corporation called All County, which the purpose of it simply was to siphon money away from both Midland Associates and my grandfather's business. One, just to steal money from me, because the beneficiaries of all county were only my aunts and uncles and their cousin, John. And two, to devalue Trump management so much that when he died, they were able to claim it was only worth $30 million and thereby avoid paying 
almost $500 million in, in uh, estate taxes. So they were trying to cheat the children of their brother who had died tragically. Yes, but also to a much larger extent, their state and their country. Yes. As we know, only the little people, right, which is us, pay taxes. This is exactly right. So, you know, that's the pattern. And it's heartening, I think, that these things are happening around the same time. You know, one, it helps my case, but I think my case also sets a precedent for what this case is, the fraud case is hopefully going to show. And the fact that it doesn't just say this only happened for Alan Weisselberg, it says employees, right? Right. So if there are two sets of books for Alan, there are two sets of books for other people. And I think we're also going to find that in these millions of pages of documents, there will be more evidence. So either they're not going to be solely relying relying on Alan Weisselberg to flip because either there's documentary evidence of Donald's direct wrongdoing or there will be other people who might be more willing to flip than Alan. Um, and I think among those might well indeed be my cousins. Oh, interesting. Like the Trump kids? You know, the brilliant uh, Suzanne Craig and Russ Butner last year published a very long investigative report about how, uh, as an executive of the organization, Ivanka also received, I I don't remember the amount, but hundreds of thousands of dollars in quote-unquote consulting fees. That's not a thing. You're either an employee or you're not an employee. So I think we're going to find a lot more of that kind of thing going on. And uh, she's much less likely to stay loyal than Ellen Weisselberg. Wait, 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 wait. Let, you think Ivanka is less likely to stay loyal than Ellen Weisselberg? Yeah, I do. Even though her dad gave her a job in the White House? <laughs> I know, shocking. Right? I mean, Ellen didn't go to the White House. No, but Ellen got stayed back. I don't know that Ellen would have wanted to go to the White House. <laughs> I don't think Alan could have cleared the no. uh, security clearance. <laughs> well, did any of them? <laughs> Come on. Right. Scared. Exactly. <laughs> um, but Alan had a pretty cushy gig where he was. And I think kind of in the grand scheme of things, as counterintuitive as this might sound, I think Ivanka has one more to lose and two more to hang on to. Her husband's family is legitimately very wealthy. Yeah. I mean, the idea of an Ivanka Trump, like, turning on, I mean, he's got such an edible thing. Is it edible? Is that the... Oh, edible. I thought you said edible. <laughs> yeah. No, is it edible, though, when it's the parent, or is it just no. molestation? No, that, I mean, what is it? incest and pedophilia. It's incest, right. But he has some kind of obsession with her, so the idea that, I mean, it, it feel the idea that she would somehow flip on him feels almost Shakespearean. Yeah, low-rent Shakespeare, for sure. Um, <laughs> because, look, the, the most basic thing to understand about his relationship with his kids and their relationship with him is that they're transactional and they're conditional. So somebody's always got to be getting something. And the only exception might be Donnie because he's so damaged in the way that the other two aren't. <laughs> it does strike me that he's so damaged. It's especially interesting now that we get to see the difference between Andrew Giuliani and Dodd Jr., oh where gosh. it seems like Dodd Jr. just looks more pathetic. Which is stunning. <laughs> stunning. <laughs> Why is that? 
that he's so broken? Yeah. I mean, their three kids grew up in the same house around the same time, and he seems significantly more broken than the other two. It is never a good thing in the Trump family to be the oldest son. Yeah. In fact, none of them probably understands this. Donald, as you mentioned from the very beginning, had this fascination with Ivanka from the time she was little and had no use for his sons. And probably, you know, I'm not privy to this because they're so much younger than I am, first of all. And secondly, I only saw them on holidays and maybe Mother's Day that, you know, like his father before him, Donald was very, very hard on Donnie. So I think the combination of realizing that he was always going to fall short and that nothing he did would get him the attention he craved. And probably one of the worst things is knowing that in this generation, being a woman was not necessarily a strike against you as it absolutely had been in Donald's generation. So, you know, the fact that that Ivanka, like, leaped over Donnie can't have, you know, landed well with him. Plus the addictions, of course. Yeah, I mean, it is just so interesting to watch. The thing that I'm struck by, which I feel like is something that you, as someone with a background in mental health and also a background in being in that family, can speak to, and it's something that I feel passionate about as the child of, as someone who's managed to squander familial fame in my own life, (laughs) it does seem like these kids are really, like, They had this opportunity to sort of take over the Republican Party and they are just not interested. You know, I don't know necessarily that it's they're not interested, although they would probably think it's beneath them in some regard. Yeah, totally. I think it's more that they have no capabilities. Yes. Donald didn't raise them to be successful uh, or to succeed him. He raised them to support him Mm. and they didn't, he didn't teach them anything. And I know that from my own experience, I mean, not only were they, you know, robbing me blind, but they didn't teach me anything about how to manage money or how (laughs) to, you know, be fiscally responsible or how to invest nothing because they weren't, they're not interested in helping anybody else if they think it's, at all to their disadvantage. So basically, Donald raised a bunch of uh, cheerleaders who have absolutely no tools to live in the world, which is fascinating because that's exactly what his father did to him in a slightly different way. Because you think, like, Don Jr. is so popular in the Republican Party. He could run for any congressional seat in a red state and probably win. Which tells us everything we need to know about the Republican Party, right? Right, right. It's true. It's not a great sign for the, where the Republican Party is. But you see, and Eric's wife, too, you know, had this opportunity to run for a Senate and is not going to do it. And you really see, you know, you would think that they're power hungry, but it's like they're too incompetent to be power hungry. Well, I think they're, yeah, they're too incompetent to be power hungry and they're too incompetent to understand how it works. Like you don't just, well, okay, I was going to say something incredibly (laughs) stupid. I was going to say, you don't just run for president right out of the gate. Right. (laughs) My bad. (laughs) My bad. But, you know, that was the zeitgeist then and, um, you know, hopefully (laughs) lightning striking four times and that won't happen again. Uh, yeah, but let us pray. You know, they they don't 
have the work ethic. Right. I mean, neither did Donald, obviously, but for whatever reason, and we're going to be trying to figure this out until we die, uh, for whatever right. reason, it didn't matter with him. In fact, for him, it was an asset. Yeah. But again, they also don't have his connections. They don't have his power. They don't have his presence. They don't, you know, they didn't build up a following the way he did. Yeah. So, you know, like, why would Ivanka Trump condescend to be a lowly congressperson? Right. I mean, it's just it's just sort of fascinating to watch them kind of disintegrate as their father leaves office and and not be at all able to kind of keep that momentum going. It does it, it as someone who, you know, comes from a family where that happens a lot. It speaks to me, you know, this idea of like having this powerful narcissistic parent who has this sort of moment. I mean, it just is sort of interesting. So what do you think happens now? Like there's so much talk. Will he run again? Will he not run again? It seems inevitable to me that he absolutely does run again. Yeah. I, you know, I, there was a, point at which I thought definitely not because he lost so badly and wouldn't want to risk that again. But as usual, and I need to stop doing it, like somebody needs to get a cattle brought every time I and zap me with it every time <laughs> I forget that the Republican Party is never going to do the right thing. Thanks to them, he's still relevant in a way that I would not have anticipated uh, on November 7th. That's true. So that does change, uh, that changes the calculus a lot, especially since they're doing this transformative thing with January 6th and basically making him out to be the hero of it somehow. And in the same way, they're going to take these fraud cases and either make him a martyr or make, make it seem as though hey, he did this because he's brilliant. Right. <laughs> Not because he's a criminal and, and anti-American. Yeah, I mean, it just strikes me. It's like they've they've kidnapped themselves. It also seems like he'll, keep, he'll run because it will keep him from being arrested. Well, running won't, but yeah, winning certainly would. I think there's a possibility that he'll pretend to run. Right, that's what I think too. And, you know, grift as much as he can grift. And then, because I think this is exactly what happened last time. He wasn't really running. He was pretending to run. And then suddenly right. he's doing well in the polls. And right. because he's a he's a coward, he would never have decided to run unless he had some assurance that he was going to win. You know, quote unquote right. win. And I think that... Um, that changed, obviously, when when every horrible thing that came to light boosted him in the polls. He basically was like, yeah. oh, I can just be my horrible self and win this thing. <laughs> it's true. Which then got him in the general election close enough to steal it, which he did. And the Republican Party was like, let's go. Exactly. And that's what concerns me more than anything else right now. Let's be be honest. Donald did everything in his power to steal this last election. He tried really, really hard, at least from uh, the call with Zelensky on down, if not before that, and probably before that. To the postmaster. That's right. Yeah. And he still lost, not by enough, but still by a significant margin. So I think that's what we can attribute these uh, voter suppression laws to, because they know 
that if they suppress just enough votes, he doesn't need to win that much. Or he yeah. could even lose uh, by a right. fair amount and still, quote unquote, win. I think that's what all of this is about. And thanks to the uh, completely corrupt Supreme Court, you know, the mountain we have to climb is just not even higher. Yeah. Oh, so depressing. You have written about and you continue to have a real view on Amer- the mental health crisis that we're in now on the way out of the pandemic. Yeah. What do you feel like? Do you feel like it's worse than you thought it would be? Do you feel like it's about the same? I mean, do you think like the thing I'm struck by is we have all of these shootings and no one is connecting them to the mental health crisis? Extraordinary. Yeah, well, that's 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 historically one of our biggest problems. We don't connect things. We don't have a a grasp of how things relate to one another. You know, I mean, I can make a case that one of the many reasons, but still a significant reason where where we are is because Robert E. Lee got away with it. Right. So I'm actually more concerned, one, for the reason you just mentioned, but two, because what I didn't factor in, you know, I said months ago that I thought we wouldn't understand just how severe the mental health crisis is going to be until we start emerging. And I think, you know, I'm not certainly not the only person who said that, but that's definitely being borne out. What I did not anticipate uh, was that this country or many people in this country would still continue to be so irresponsible, so selfish and so deluded that we would be looking at more spikes in COVID and now new variants that you know, may in in the long run be able to find their ways around the vaccines. Thus far, we've been quite lucky. But if we can, if people continue to get infected at the rates they're getting infected and spreading COVID, then that's going to change because this is a very wily, adorable virus. And what are people going to do if faced once again, you know, with another lockdown? That's the other reason. I think it was a huge mistake to go from zero to 60 the way even New York has. It's insane to me that one day everybody has to wear a mask, next day nobody does. Right. This is so interesting. Mary, please, will you come back soon and talk to us more? When your book comes out, will you come back? Oh, my God. I love, I love being here and hanging out with you guys. And uh, I hope it's definitely not as long as it was last time. Yes, me too. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When picking a commerce platform for your business, you have two choices. Or... I prefer... Don't you? 
That's the sound you'll hear when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell, online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Shopify is the best all-in-one commerce platform capable of handling your business's complexity no matter how big you grow. Step up to Shopify and harness the best converting checkout and the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and so much more. You're probably thinking, sure, but migrating is going to be a headache. Shopify's app store has the migration apps you need to migrate your products, orders, customers, and more from every major e-commerce platform to Shopify. If you're anything like me, you're one of those don't put me in a box people. Everyone who knows me knows knows I'm a don't put me in a box person. And thankfully, Shopify never will because with Shopify, control of your brand and business is always in your hands from your storefront look to your back office operations. I hate when checking out from an online store and then having to pull out my credit card and type in all those numbers. A Shopify store remembers my shipping address and payment information. So if I'm on the couch and my wallet is on the kitchen counter... I don't even have to get up. Stop leaving sales on the table. Switch your business to Shopify and discover why millions trust Shopify as their all-in-one commerce platform to build, grow, and run their business. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. That's one month for just $1 at shopify.com slash abnormal, all lowercase. Shopify.com slash abnormal. Hey folks, if you haven't heard, every single week we do a special bonus episode for Beast Inside, the Daily Beast membership program. Sometimes we interview senators like Cory Booker or the folks who explain what's happening behind the scenes in media like Jim Acosta or Soledad O'Brien. Sometimes we just have fun and talk to our favorite comedians and actors like Busy Phillips or Billy Eichner. And sometimes we just have friends around to analyze what's happening in the news. You can get all of our episodes in your favorite podcast app of choice by becoming a Beast Inside member, where you'll support the Beast's fearless journalism, as well as getting full access to podcasts and articles. To become a member, head to newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. That's newabnormal.thedailybeast.com. Brian Boitler is the Editor-in-Chief of Politics at Crooked Media. So welcome to the new abnormal, Brian Boitler. Thank you for having me. We really wanted to have you on. I read your newsletter, but we really wanted to have you on because you had a really interesting take on the Democratic voting problem, which is our elections now being completely fucked up forever. Can you explain to our listeners a little bit about this idea? Yeah, sure. So I think the best way in is to give a little bit of background, which is that obviously Democrats have been spending a lot of time trying to pass new laws that would protect the franchise for people whose votes are currently being suppressed and also kind of level the playing field of voting in in general. Obviously, there's structural bias in the House via gerrymandering. There's structural bias in the Senate via Senate malapportionment. So you can fix that by adding states. And the problem is that Democrats are, are, are struggling to pass those bills. They don't want to abolish the filibuster. And so they can't get the votes together to pass them. And then even if they did, they have this other problem, which is that the, the courts are currently very right-leaning and are seem very likely to throw laws like that out to the extent that they can. And so I, I started thinking, you know, what, what are they going to do if that whole effort falls apart? They can't get any of, uh, of those sort of structural ideas passed. I mean, what can they do to kind of re-level the playing field that wouldn't be subject to the filibuster, that wouldn't be subject to being thrown out by the Supreme Courts? And they are sort of dead set on, on 
only governing uh, on a sort of majority rules basis through the this arcane budget process called reconciliation, where the filibuster doesn't apply. And so can you use that process, which is only for taxes and spending, to make uh, voting easier such that these suppressive voter laws um, won't have a major effect? And so the idea that, that I proposed, and it's sort of just in the spirit of Let's let's start thinking really hard about what we're going to do, because this is an emergency, is to create a tax credit that uh, anyone who votes in a federal election can claim. You know, all people who who vote in federal elections, two or three hundred dollars. And the idea would be to create an incentive for people to vote that it would draw a lot of non-voters out of the woodwork, get them engaged in the civic process. But then at the same time, you could, I think, accurately portray the inducement as a way of making voters who are being put through all these hoops, make them whole. If you have to take time off work because your employer doesn't let you take election day off, so you need to schedule a different day off to vote early, if you need to go get a voter ID, the, the money that you get from actually voting uh, can can be put towards those costs. And this isn't, you know, it's not something that I completely invented out of whole cloth. They do things like this in other countries. And I, I think there are even estimates about how much money would create how much additional turnout. And it would at least solve the problem of voter suppression, making it so that close races at the margin are decided by Republican efforts to make it hard for people to vote. So this is paying people to vote. It's paying people for voting. I realize that if you propose this, there's going to be a right wing opposition to it and they're going to frame it as a kind of bribery, right? Like you're paying voters to vote for you. And no, that's not it. You're paying Republican voters as much as you're paying Democratic voters, as much as you're paying independent voters. Anyone who votes can claim the tax credit. It's just a way of saying we understand that we want people to participate and also that there are some impediments to participating. So this is a way of making it worth your while, even if without the tax credit, it's not, or you just can't make it work. So I think talking about it in that way, uh, uh, paying people for voting as a opposed to paying them to vote is something that the message people would have to figure out. Right, right, right. But that's the idea is, yes, if you vote, the government will pay you. It's funny because reconciliation, we've seen Republicans pass Arctic drilling uh, via reconciliation. I mean, reconciliation is whatever you want it to be, right? It's the magical mystery tour of the Senate. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, so it is in a way like kind of the whole idea that Democrats couldn't just pass shopping on the internet like they could pass whatever they want with reconciliation they just need to get the parliamentarian on board yeah that's mostly right so paying people to vote would be bulletproof in reconciliation right, basically anything that you can yeah anything that that a tax credit can pay somebody or write a check for is something that the reconciliation process will allow you get sort of in a murkier territory when you're talking about things that maybe affect the budget at the margins but don't principally involve the government changing tax rates or spending new money. And we we actually ran into this problem a couple months ago when Democrats were trying to pass the American Rescue Plan. There was a, an effort to try to pass the minimum wage through the budget reconciliation process on the theory that when people get paid um, more money, they use social safety net programs less and they pay more in taxes. And so it affects yeah. the budget, right? And the parliamentarian said, no, that's not really budgetary enough. It's too indirect. And then in theory, there's a level beyond that where any party who controls the Senate can basically tell the parliamentarian to fuck off. You're right. just a staffer. Right. And, and if, if 50, 50 members of the Senate plus the vice president or a majority of the Senate votes to overrule the parliamentarian, then it's gone. But that's essentially akin to just saying there's no more filibuster. And that's why Democrats who don't want to abolish the filibuster also don't want 
to just say we're going to cram everything into the into this reconciliation bill. Right. And when the parliamentarian says this, this, this and this don't count, we're just going to overrule her. You mean act like Republican? Yes. I mean, Republicans did fire a parliamentarian right. once to get um, their way, right? Why the fuck wouldn't they? I mean, they're <laughs> Republicans. That's what they do. If you're going to override the parliamentarian, then sort of it, everything is fair. Like you could ban partisan gerrymandering through reconciliation. When the, But they're not doing that. What they will do, seemingly, is spend a lot of money through the tax code, through direct spending programs to help fix the country's infrastructure, right? So it's the roads and bridges and, and rural broadband and all the you know things that are classically thought of as infrastructure. Then there's this separate conversation of, well, are things like childcare and, and can we portray that as infrastructure, human infrastructure, to help people get through the difficulties of modern life? And this could be like democracy infrastructure, democratic infrastructure, where you know our system is rickety just like our roads and bridges are and so helping people navigate them with money with new resources is i feel like on is sort of on the on the on the same level that uh childcare spending is human infrastructure this is infrastructure spending in its own right and they're willing to use the budget process to do it so they should start thinking really hard about ways to incent you use the tax code to incentivize a healthier democracy and the two ideas I wrote were, A, this voting tax credit, and being an employer tax inducement of some kind to basically turn Election Day into a federal holiday in practice, if not in fact, right? You tell employers that if they let, if they, if they let their employees take Election Day off, they get this amount of money, and then suddenly, you know, tens of millions or hundreds of millions of, uh, of workers are free to vote on, you know, the first Tuesday in November. Is the Democratic failure to be as effective in the Senate, like Democrats control the Senate right now. I mean, I know it's slim, but we have it. They have gotten some things passed, right? American Rescue Plan is so good, Republicans are taking credit for it. Like, mm -hmm. So there have definitely been wins in the Biden column, but there are certainly the voting is not has not been a win yet. And it no. is. And we're looking down the barrel of a really scary midterm. And it does look like these red states. Nothing has quieted them. And the Supreme Court seems pretty committed to letting Republicans do whatever they want in these red states. Mm -hmm. Why do you think Democrats seem sort of stuck on this? I just think that there's you know, it's a it's a it's a big party with lots of uh, people who have lots of ideas about politics and what voters will care about and how to get reelected. And some of those ideas are bad. You know, it's really hard to figure why somebody like Kristen Cinema, Kirsten Cinema, for me, why someone like Kirsten Cinema would be so adamantly opposed to changing the filibuster rules so that these democracy reform bills she claims to support can pass because her state is not that red. So right. she's not a shoe in as a Democrat if she gets sure. primary. And then separately, yeah. if she does remain the, the Democrat Senate candidate in Arizona, Arizona is run by Republicans and they're going to try to screw her out of office with either voter suppression or just election subversion, just saying that, you know, we say that this election was riddled with fraud and you didn't win and we're not going to, you know, whatever. Nevertheless, she has become fixated on this claim that the filibuster is good for creating bipartisanship, which is good for the country. But there's no evidence that that's true. And also all the laws that Republicans in Arizona are passing to try to elbow her out of office are being passed on a totally party line basis. So she she's unilaterally disarming in a fight over her seat in the Senate. And I can't explain that other than just some people have really stupid ideas about politics and nevertheless get 
ahead in the political realm, end up senator, whatever. <laughs> it's sort of mind-blowing, right? Like, Manchin makes a lot of sense, right? He's mm-hmm. from West Virginia. The Democrats in West Virginia have had a terrible time of it. The governor used to be a Democrat and has changed to a Republican. Like, it makes a lot of sense, right? And you could see mm-hmm. where you don't want to fuck with Manchin. Like, he may... There's, you know, we heard this Fox anchor the other day asking him if he wanted to switch parties. I mean, like, you, you know, if you don't have Joe Manchin in West Virginia, you don't have a Democrat. Like, okay. Yeah. But with cinema, you know, the other seat is by, is, you know, a Democrat. It's a rapidly bluing state. Republicans are doing crazy shit. And she seems just sort of fine with it. Why can't Democrats figure out how to make election day national holiday that seems like a no-brainer mitch mcconnell understands that if election day were national holiday more people would vote and that would be bad for republicans so he filibusters it and now suddenly it's a 60 vote thing and there aren't 60 votes for it right back to the that time in march when they were trying to do the minimum wage increase through reconciliation they thought about how can we use a tax inducement to make employers give their employees 15 dollars minimum wages and it was just too unruly of a of a mechanism. And so just the whole thing fell apart. But you could essentially make it a holiday if you gave employers free money to give their workers the day off. I think that that, that would work. And then once it's once it's enshrined in this sort of back doorway through the tax code, then people might, you know, Republicans might relent. Like people like the overwhelming majority of people already have this as a holiday. Why not just make right. it official? You can't take it away. But as long as McConnell has has an angle, it's not going to pass. It's so interesting because we have if we've learned one thing from this week or the last two weeks, this Supreme Court session is that if you give people something, the Supreme Court is very hesitant to take it away. Yep. I had another question for you, which is so mm-hmm. one of the big stories this weekend, which I feel like nobody got interested in, and I don't quite understand why was this video of the Exxon lobbyists. Mm -hmm. And in this video, I just want to, for the people who are playing at home, there was this video done by Greenpeace UK where they ended up conning these two Exxon lobbyists into admitting that they have, you know, that they have these very cushy relationships with a bunch of senators, including Cinema and Manchin. Why is there not more outrage about this? I don't know the answer. I mean, I feel like there's a fair amount of outrage about it. I I also think that it's just when there's a problem that arises because Joe Manchin or, or Kirsten Cinema or any other Democrat is using the sort of immense leverage they have as the pivotal vote to prevent anything from happening is, you know, what can the party do to make them act right? And for people who aren't in the Senate, for people who aren't Chuck Schumer, you call her office and scream at her. You do try to get somebody to primary her. There, there are outside tactics that people can use. And I think they likely will as a result of things just like this in the party. Like when you're, when you have a leadership position in the party and you're trying to influence members, it's a thornier thing because, you know, you don't want to make an enemy of somebody whose vote you need. At the same time, you don't want to surrender what leverage you do have to make them change the way they behave. And I, I think that it's unclear to me yet how creative uh, Chuck Schumer is being or will be about the mansion cinema problem that he has. And, you know, I think we'll know by the end, did Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer do really everything they could to try to get those two in line 
And then we can, you know, make a judgment call as sort of political observers or analysts as to whether the problem was really just that they have, there are these two eccentric characters who won't let good things happen or whether it's just that the party has made a political calculation for reasons of just kind of being timid or, or being in the pocket of corporations or whatever to not fight so hard to do, you know, the things that they were elected to do. But I don't know that we can make that judgment call at this point. July, I guess, uh, just just seven months after Biden took office. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Molly. David Roberts writes the Volts newsletter on clean energy and politics. Welcome to the new abnormal, David Roberts. So glad to be here. You you write about climate. So Jesse wants to talk about the burning ocean first. <laughs> there's, there's so many climate catastrophes, we can't figure out which one to go for first. But can you talk to us about the oceans on fire, the Gulf of Mexico? Sure. It was a Mexican national oil company called Pemex. They have a giant platform out in the Gulf. They have a giant natural gas pipeline that connects to the platform and something about the connection went wonky. And so a giant fire started (laughs) something like 70 meters below the surface and sort of boiled up to the surface of the water. It was put out with liquid nitrogen within about five hours. It was a Mexican company. So environmentally speaking, it wasn't that huge of a deal. I mean, these things are all relative. Like it wasn't like the last goal. It wasn't like a Gulf oil spill of, right. you know, back, back, back in the day. It's just mostly the visual. I mean, <laughs> I mean, mostly, honestly, the impact is just like, you know, it seems like reality is getting awfully literal with us trying to, be, trying to bang us over the head. Like, what do I got to do over here? I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit about the heat dome because for the oceans on fire between that and the you know, the 15th hurricane of the two months of the, you know, we're in month one of hurricane season. I was hoping you could talk to us about the heat dome because that is really, I've never in my lifetime seen something like that. You know, it's a combination of, all these things are sort of combinations of weather phenomena that are relatively rare, boosted by climate change, basically. The signal, you know, um, made more frequent by climate change and more severe by climate change. So it's not as though one of these heat domes has never happened before. It's just hotter, sits there a little bit longer. And consequently, all-time temperature records were broken in B.C. In in, in three days running in, in, in B.C. I read, I think recently, that more than 700 people in British Columbia experienced, quote, sudden death due to just heat. Like, I think people don't really appreciate how deadly heat is like of all the environmental sort of stressors heat is so dangerous and it's so insidious because it can it can kill you relatively quickly in in ways that you don't necessarily feel coming a long way off so you know you really these things require a lot of preparation and a lot of social sort of mutual care uh, and we're finding out yeah. also, I think, that the U.S. is not particularly well set up to to do those things either. We had this heat bubble, right? It, it's a heat dome, and it was over Canada and also the Pacific Northwest. Yes. No, that's correct. And, and those areas, I live in Seattle, those areas are right. not 
a custom. I mean, Seattle's sort of <laughs> legendary. We we complain about how cold and rainy it is for, you know, 10 and a half months of the year and then complain how hot it is when it gets up to like 75, 80. That's that's yeah. that's hot here and it was up to 109 uh I think in Seattle, which is just mind-boggling. We're totally unprepared for it. Just social services, just the physical infrastructure, all of it. Like you need to be prepared for that and the electricity system also is not prepared for massive oncoming air conditioners in that part of the country. So, you know, just all, it's really exposing all these kind of climate catastrophes are just exposing how vulnerable and unprepared our national infrastructure is. But it strikes me that we are already too late. I push back against that Phrasing, Good. Because I'll put it this way. The, the national targets or the international targets of the IPCC, the, the, the international group that meets <clears throat> and has been meeting for ages, is to try to limit global temperature rise to 1.5 Celsius over pre-industrial levels. That's sort of like that's the threshold of danger. And then two. But the thing the thing to understand is that two is incrementally worse than 1.5. And like right. 2.1 is worse than 2 and 2.2 is right. worse than 2.1. It, it gets – it's bad already. It's definitely going to get worse. But we are now <laughs> – we have some control over just how bad it gets. And like when you look at the scientific reports about what like 3 degrees or 4 degrees looks like. Right. Cataclysmic. E- so even if we're too late – to stay under 1.5, which I think, right. if we're being honest with ourselves, we probably are. We've probably already blown that. It's still better to act as fast as possible and do as much as possible to avoid 2, to avoid 2.5, etc. Like, there's never, there's no such thing as too late. It can always get worse. So how how do we do that? Because it's, you know, we have, Biden has this impressive, which it strikes me, you know, the fact that everyone, that people were so critical of it doing too much makes me think it was maybe close to what we needed. <laughs> and it's been derailed by the Republican Party. And I'm curious, do you think there's a world in which that can come back? Do Do you think that anyone can be moved by, you know, it's so funny because it's like you really see the pan- when the pandemic was coming in January, I was like, this is so bad. We are going to get so sick. You know, you're watching it come from China to Milan to mm-hmm. England. You know, I saw it like coming and I said, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And everyone was like, yeah, 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 it's fine. And and I feel like that's now, now we've gone from that to this. Well, you know, people in the climate world used to say all the time, um, maybe eventually if something bad enough happens, It'll wake people up, right? Like a like a bad enough hurricane or two simultaneous disasters or, you know, all these sort of scenarios you spin out, that will wake people up. But I think what we saw with the pandemic is it can be real bad and immediate and right in your face and hundreds of thousands of people dying around you and will still just we still won't act like we still won't wake up like we never woke up i mean we barely woke up to the pandemic even as we were experiencing it so i think that the idea that that like nature itself is going to kind of smack republicans across the face and wake them up is really forlorn at least for the time yeah. at least for the time being what can be done is what democrats can do without republican help 
That's just that's yeah. true at the state level, it's true at the city level, and it's true at the national level. What are you seeing in climate world that legislatively looks promising? Every state where Democrats take total control starts cranking out great climate policy. Oh, interesting. Colorado has had a wildly productive couple of sessions on climate and energy. Same thing is true for Washington. Oregon just passed a net zero by 2040 law. So as a rule of thumb, if you give Democrats power, they'll do stuff. So that's what we see at the state level is like, Democrats doing stuff where they can. So the question is just those state levels, those state actions are impressive and good and like nudge momentum, but are not ever going to be enough on their own. We got to have a national program. I just don't think Republicans are going to, you know, get smart on this (laughs) in in time. So the question is what, what, what Democrats can do on their own. And we are facing right now a very you know, clear-cut test of that, which is they can do a reconciliation bill on their own with 50 Democratic votes. So this is sort of like, again, reality is just like heightening the contradictions here. Like, if you can get every Democrat on board in Congress, then we can do something big. And that, of course, as we all know by now, comes down to a tiny handful of conservative Democrats who... Who knows what they really think, but are saying that they love bipartisanship so darn much. They love bipartisanship more than they love, you know, mitigating climate change or 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 restoring <laughs> voting rights or, yeah. you know, reducing inequality. Name it. They love bipartisanship so much they're willing to sacrifice everything else to it. So we'll see how that drama plays out. I mean, it's really in the throes right now. The decisions are being made in the next couple of weeks in the Democratic caucus that are going to have enormous historical consequences. I don't know if everybody's quite as like on the edge of their seat and freaked out about it (laughs) as they should be, but like this is... Wait, tell us why we should be. Well, you know, there's this two, there's this sort of two-step dance going on in the Democratic caucus. We're going to do a bipartisan infrastructure bill, right? They came to a bipartisan agreement and that has like a couple of things for climate, but not really. It's not not a, it's not any kind of climate plan. And then, secondly, we're going to do this reconciliation bill with all the other stuff that we couldn't get in the bipartisan bill, and we're going to have all 50 Democrats vote for it. That is just an incredibly fraught (laughs) and difficult strategy. The bipartisan thing could fall apart. And if the bipartisan thing falls apart, how will Manchin and Cinema feel about the reconciliation thing? And like getting, getting the reconciliation bill through requires every single Democrat, cinema, you know, Coons, Manchin, every single one has to agree to everything in the package. So that is obviously going to limit the ambition of the package, even if there is a package, even if we can get one all the way through. So so we're finding out in the next couple of weeks just how big Democrats can or will go on climate change. Let's talk about these senators you mentioned, Manchin, Cinema, Coons, <sighs> and Exxon lobbyists. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so tired of talking about Joe Manchin. I can't believe that fucking video. I mean... I know. This is what I mean about reality heightening everything. Like, this feels like 
a satire. It feels like our our whole political lives have become like a crude satire. A yes, an episode of Veep. So so every everything every left activist, everything every climate activist ever said about Exxon is true. Was confirmed in the most sort of like crude and obvious and like just thudding possible way you could do it. And then like a couple days later, the CEO of Exxon comes out with the, not one, but two apology uh, statements saying, oh, these lobbyists are totally wrong about our policy stance. And I'm like, excuse me, dude, literally, we just heard them. literally their job is to take your policy stance to legislators, that is the definition of what they do. Of course they know your policy stance. That's what they do. Like, of course they're not, you know, like, it's just all so farcical. But, you know, maybe this will maybe this will shake public opinion or shake legislator opinion enough to, like, get tough or get appropriately skeptical towards Exxon. I mean, Exxon, and, you know... In subsequent days, there have been a lot of Exxon is that, you know, I don't I'm not entirely sure, but it's one of the sort of top big. It's one of the top five biggest polluters in the world. Yes, it's the biggest. I mean, it's interesting. The global oil industry is really interesting right now. The European oil majors are really getting religion on climate. They're really putting out big, bold plans and they're really taking action. And the American oil majors are, as always, the caboose here and Exxon is the caboose of the caboose. You know, it fought off climate science longest of anyone. It fought off any action as long as anyone. And now, I mean, this is interesting. Now, you know, it says we support a price on carbon, right? We support a carbon tax and all the left activists are out there saying, well, of course you support a carbon tax because you know, no national carbon tax is going to get passed. You know, no politician is going to go for that. And the lobbyist said outright we know they're never going to go for that. So again, right. everything everyone said about them is absolutely true. So, so the interesting thing will be to watch Exxon in coming weeks. Will they really support policies that actually have some chance of becoming law? I mean, uh, I color me skeptical. I get the sense that Exxon doesn't have any plan to do the right thing ever, <laughs> but I could be wrong. It's a real open and interesting question what oil companies can do and whether they can, and whether they can survive right I mean there are things they can do and you know all the oil companies around the world are supporting carbon capture which is this idea that you can continue burning fossil fuels you just capture the carbon dioxide they release and bury it and I was like well wow. that's that's convenient that's the one climate solution that allows oil companies to continue prospering. It's interesting right. that you chose that one to uh, to, to uh, almost uh, alone among climate policies to support. So, you know, so it, the question is, can giant oil and gas majors transition away from oil and gas <laughs> and live through right. it and, and become just energy companies? You know, it's been right. it's been done other large energy companies have done it in europe but like exxon's culture is so against that i mean exxon is just right. like absolutely the wild cat like america screw you you know they've got that deep in their corporate culture so it will be the last to move i suspect it was interesting listening to those lobbyists say like well if we are forced to pay our corporate taxes 
you know, and that will be a billion dollars. Like, fuck you. Okay, good. <laughs> pay the fucking billion dollars. Like, I pay my taxes. Like, that's what we do, man. I know. Imagine, like, imagine the world you have to live in for that to sound reasonable. You say, wait, if I pay my taxes, that's going to hurt my business. What? I can't do that. <laughs> I mean, it's so preposterous. I mean, it just is crazy. And then you hear, I always think of Susan Collins because she's held up as this moderate whatever yeah. she's not. And she is the one who says, you know, we should tax these people with the electric cars, we should do a tax uh, on them yeah, to pay for the highways that they're driving on. And I thought, fuck you. You really want to see us all just go down it. You know, I mean, it just was. Uh, well, it's also like politics is all about team sports now. Like whatever Democrats choose, Republicans got to choose the opposite thing and fight for that team. But like you really want to be fighting for the team of like pollution and fossil fuels and climate change. Like really you want to dig in on that? I mean, it's an interesting question about, about electric cars because it's true. The gas tax does pay for road, most road maintenance and electric cars don't pay any gas tax, in some ways you could say that's great. It will encourage more people to buy electric cars, but then you really do have to worry about a funding source for your infrastructure. What about corporations? Let me make a yeah. crazy suggestion <laughs> no. for that corporations pay their fucking taxes. Yeah, that would be great. Corporations and rich people, it's uh, it, they've got the money that that policy is about as popular across parties and right. demographics and regions of the country as any policy you could name in the world. It's sort of a, it's like a barometer of American political dysfunction. How popular of a policy can there be that can't pass, right? Like this is like right. 80, 90 percent of the public wants this and it just can't pass. And as a matter of fact, every time Republicans get the reins of power, they do the exact opposite and all their voters yeah. who say they support taxing rich people are just like, uh, I guess it's fine because at least they're like jailing immigrants. It, right. It made, they're drilling in the Arctic. It made them happy. Come on, guys. Push your own side. I mean, Trump really just took a hatchet to yes. the climate. Was Biden administration able to reverse some of that or was it too late? It's they're in the. I mean, they did a bunch of stuff. There was a bunch of executive orders issued on the on literally on day one that that did some of the work and like some of that is ongoing. Some of that, of course, takes a long time. Like getting a rulemaking through the EPA is a long process. Like and it's an extended. It didn't take Trump's EPA very long because they were a bunch of hacks and they were like writing their analysis with crayons and like the courts have been overthrowing half of it. But like to to do it right takes a long time. So that's all underway. But I, I really think people don't appreciate the scale and extent of damage that Trump did just to the federal bureaucracy. People don't appreciate, you know, people think of bureaucrat as a bad thing and like government employees as, as bad and everything. But like the civil service is what makes America great. And it has been just decimated by Trump. So it would take, I mean, it's going to take Biden four years just to kind of repair it, much less like move move forward. Yeah. Jesus Christ. All right. So tell me something to be a little bit hopeful about. <laughs> well, the thing to be hopeful about is that the quest to create clean energy, zero carbon, clean energy technology has escaped the realm of politics and has reached the realm of engineers and managers, <laughs> business people and researchers and, uh, you know, inventors. And they're gripped by this problem. So progress 
on clean technology is just moving so quickly. And it's like every single forecast you could look at for solar or wind or batteries or any of those things, they've spread faster than anyone predicted. They've gotten cheaper than anyone has predicted. They've flourished. And so that's you know, if there's one thing in America, I mean, I've 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 been amazed by how resistant polarization is to any type of change. You know how much it can stand up in the face of anything. But I think if there's one acid bath in America that can eat through some partisanship, it's just money. And there's a lot of money in clean energy technology, including in red states where like the, who have most of the wind power. So, so just venality and greed are going to pull some people in behind clean energy technology in coming years. I like it. Yeah, that's fine. It'll do. Thank you so much, David. I hope you'll come back. Oh, yeah, I'd love to. What's crazier than QAnon? More outlandish than Pizzagate? And scarier than a Mexican getaway with Ted Cruz? The answer is what the American right wing has planned next. Be one of the first to listen to Fever Dreams, the new podcast from the Daily Beast tracking the conspiracy slingers, orange acolytes, and straight-up grifters pushing to retake power. Every Wednesday, hosts Swin Subasang and Will Summer check in on the movement of the radical right. Head to thedailybeast.com slash podcasts or your favorite podcast player to catch the first episode and get subscribed. That's Fever Dreams, which you can subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to a special familial July 5th edition of Fuck That Guy. We have today a special familial guest for Fuck That Guy, woke teenage son. He is known on Twitter. He is my son, Max Greenfield. I had him when he was very young. I have to say this because otherwise I sound very old. And so I must say that I had him when I was 23. You sound very old anyway. Yeah, thank you. I, maybe I was 22 when I had him. I was 19 when I had him. So now he's 17. That makes me 23. And You can look he, up the back episodes of Teen Mom. <laughs> yes, that's right. I, young Teen Mom. Uh, and today he is going to volunteer his Fuck That Guy. So Max Greenfield... Who is your fuck that okay. guy? Fuck the entire Green family. Just like the like people who own Hobby Lobby. They're they're the most comically evil evangelicals. Like they like buy like looted artifacts directly from ISIS. There's all sorts of shitty stuff. Um, a few years back, we went to the Bible Museum. That's right, we did. I which, can attest, which is free. Yeah, um, which I didn't like because it didn't focus on any of the awesome apocryphal Bible (laughs) Gospels. I think what's important to say about the Hobby Lobby is that they've worked really hard to make it harder for people to get birth control, make it so companies don't have to pay for birth control. They've kicked up a bunch of cases to the Supreme Court. They're in the news right now. Because they put, they're literally in the news because they posted a full page ad on a whole bunch of local papers, which don't really have the leverage to like confirm or deny or really talk at all with advertisers. Advertising money. The only interaction they have with their advertisers is to beg for more money. (laughs) Um, And so they put out a full page spread in a whole bunch of newspapers about how America needs to be like a Christian theocracy or whatever. And it's, this is one of those, like, Christian evangelical right-wing things that I especially hate, just because it's so dumb. It's it's a dumb idea that has somehow persisted for, like, almost 400 years now. Every once in a while, there's some sort of revival movement. 
and it sort of, it piggybacked off of a lot of the religious reformation that created sort of distinct American religion that separated, that acted as one of the greater separators between the U.S. and Europe, and this sort of American theocracy movement has piggybacked off of those movements, and it's stuck around for an incredibly long time. Okay, so your fuck that guy today is the, the Hob- Green family, and and more specifically and hilariously the Hobby Lobby. Yeah, um, but also like remember, kids, don't buy looted antiquities from terrorist organizations. <laughs> yes, a good message to the youth. It's a two for one on evil. <laughs> so my fuck that guy today is you may know him as the 45th president of the United States, reality television host who paints himself orange to look young. Donald J. Trump went to Florida this weekend while the Surfside recovery effort was going on to give a pretty amazing, and and by amazing I mean unspectacular, uh, his usual meandering speech. What I think is relevant is 200 miles away, the Surfside disaster, they were still trying to get people out of that wreckage. And every time Trump goes somewhere, he uses local resources. So even though it was only 200 miles away, it's, you know, a diversion of police and, and firemen and people who could otherwise be useful in Surfside. But also there's a really big tropical storm coming to Florida. So it just is a perfect storm, if you will, of stupid. And um, even there has been, there was reporting that DeSantis begged him not to come and he uh, did anyway. So for that total and utter disregard for others and tragedy and everything else. But also, wait, wait, there's more. He gave press credentials to members of QAnon, and for that, Donald Trump is back as my fuck that guy. I mean, honestly, though, if I were Trump, I wouldn't care what DeSantis thinks either. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Especially in Florida itself. (laughs) On that note, we'll wrap this episode of The New Abnormal from The Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking to smart folks from The Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science who will help us understand what's happening to our country and the world. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and share the show on social media. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again on the next episode. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.